The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Matthew chapter 16. We'll be there in a few moments. I truly believe that a baptismal service is one of the most wonderful events that a church gets to experience. Seeing people up there who are not accustomed to going up in front of crowds testifying to what Christ has done in their lives. And I think it's especially um, powerful for me this morning just because we've been able to see uh, Steve and Chantel come to the church for the first time. We've been able to see them growing in the Lord and, and serving here. We've, we've seen God working in their lives. And we know how difficult a decision like this is for a lot of folks. And yet they've chosen to trust the Lord. So it's just a wonderful service. And we understand today, too, that baptism is just one of two ordinances that God gave to the church. And in many ways, they're similar. Both of the ordinances are given to help us point to the gospel. That in the baptismal service, we see a person come and express the fact that there's nothing they could do to save themselves, that it was Christ that saved them. And then they're baptized to show that they're in Christ, they're baptized into his death, and they're raised again. They're brought up out of the water to symbolize the fact that they're now living in newness of life, that Christ is living in them and through them. So it's a wonderful picture of the gospel. And in the same way, communion is a picture of the gospel, that as we take the elements, they're just physical elements, they point us to the sacrifice that was made that his body was given for us, that his blood was spilt on our behalf, and that because of those things, we can come today to the Lord's Supper and have fellowship and communion with God and with each other. We, the leadership of the church, are utterly convinced that based on God's word, there is no activity in the life of the church that is of more importance and, and of greater value than that of the Lord's Supper. David S. Dockery wrote a book. It's called The Lord's Supper. And I think he, in one paragraph, seems to encapsulate all that takes place here in the Lord's Supper. He says, The highest form of corporate Christian worship is the Lord's Supper. The celebration of the Supper directs our attention backward to the work of Christ on the cross and also encourages a forward look to the second coming of Christ. In addition, it provides a time for believers to examine their own personal relationship with God as well as their relationship with other believers while experiencing communion with the exalted Christ. The observance is one that is so simple a child can partake with a sense of understanding, yet it contains so many theological ramifications that even the most mature believer will not fully comprehend its meaning. And that is the Lord's Supper, and that's why you see folks who have been saved for 50 and 60 years come to the Lord's Supper once again with, with an excitement and a desire for it, a longing for it, that this is the most moving service that we participate in. Because it draws us back to where we're supposed to be. It draws us back to the cross. It helps us to remember the things that are of greatest importance. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is teaching a lesson to his disciples. Previously in the chapter, he has already warned them of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. 
And that leaven he's speaking about is certainly false teaching, but I think we can specifically say when he looks at these two groups, we see that, that in many ways they're very different, but the thing that they both have in common is that they both are very ritualistic. They're both, both very focused on laws, in a, on the keeping of the laws by man. That, that's what um, justifies them. They're, they're looking for their righteousness in their goodness, in their keeping of laws. So he tells them to beware of the leaven. In other words, saying you've got to be aware that you are not doing these things. You are not so focused on God's law that you're missing the relationship you ought to be having with God. That you're not so focused on rituals and traditions that you think somehow that's it. No, rituals and traditions are good, but they're there to point you to something so much greater, a relationship with Christ. This morning, the next few moments, I hope to give you some truths that you can consider. Because I think if we meet today and all we do is go through the motions, nothing of value has occurred. We must use this tradition, this ritual, to point us to Christ and to encourage our relationship with Christ, our dwelling upon what he's done for us, and our relationships with each other. So in Matthew chapter 16, um, verse number 13, they... The disciples are brought by Jesus. Immediately after him warning them, they're brought by Jesus to Caesarea Philippi. And here's an area that they're now looking, they're in Gentile area. I think Jesus does this for a reason, because he's about to ask them a question that ultimately affects not just the Jews there, but also the Gentiles. He says in verse 13, when Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, saying, Whom do men that I say that I, the Son of Man, am? Who are people saying that I am? What's the popular opinion? This is a question that none of us would have a problem answering. If I said today, if I, I walked up to each one of you, I said, hey, who do you think popular culture thinks of Jesus? You would have an enjoyable time answering that question, considering what you've heard from your neighbors, what you see on television, what you know is going on in the world today. You'd say, yeah, I think some people think that you're a great teacher. Most people, you know, think well of you. They think you were a good man. Maybe you had some good philosophies. Um, and so we would have no problem giving this, this general idea of who Jesus is according to the world around us. But Jesus is asking this question because he wants them to understand that there is a difference between knowing who everybody thinks Jesus is and answering the question for ourselves. And so in verse 15, sorry, verse 14, I think they say something that's meant to flatter him. I think that, that their answer as to the popular opinion of Christ is meant to pick the best ideas of what people think he is. They say, they said, some say that you're John the Baptist. Everybody loved him. Everybody followed him. Some say you're like him. Some say Elias or Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. They're pointing at the most recognizable people for the Jews and saying, people think you're like them. And I think they're thinking, yeah, Jesus is going to be impressed. He's not. But the second question comes, and this is what Jesus is getting at. He saith unto him, Whom say ye that I am? Who do you say? Who do you think that I am? I think it's worth mentioning here that he's already given them the right answer. He started out saying, Whom do they say that I, the Son of Man, am? 
And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the Son of Man, that that term is pointing to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where the Messiah is introduced as the Son of Man. And in in Daniel chapter 7, verse um, 13, Daniel is seeing a vision. Verse 14 describes who this Son of Man is. It says, And there was given him, the Son of Man, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So he's already told them that he is the coming Messiah, that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's answered it for them, but now he's, he wants them. I mean, this is, this is what's wonderful about Jesus. He does everything he can to make it easy for us. Right? I, I mean, he, he comes and he dies for us and he gives us the right answer. And he says, this is who I am. But then ultimately we have to answer the question for ourselves. And so Peter here, here nails it. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. Verse 17, Jesus says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. See, Christ is interested in the belief of the individual, not just the group, not just everyone else, not just the world around us. Christ demands that we answer this question for ourselves. And the answer of your father or your mother or your sister or the church member down the, down the row, none of those things matter for you. None of those make a difference. You have to answer this question for yourself. You have to know the identity of Christ. And there is no more important question than that, that we answer. Who is Christ? Who is Jesus? Peter, in John chapter 6, verse 68, says something else that's very helpful for us. Jesus has just been preaching to a large crowd, and his sermon is such that at the end of his sermon, everybody leaves. Everybody goes away. They, they no longer want to hear what Jesus has to say. And so Jesus looks at the disciples and says, are, are you also going to leave? Are you also going away? Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go Thou hast the words of eternal life. Christ has the words of eternal life. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Not all of the, not everyone that was lost. It's not the idea. In this verse, it's actually being very specific. It's to seek and to save that, that person which was lost. So we come to Christ as individuals. In Romans 10, verse 13, it says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. I'm trying to make a very distinct point about this. I'm trying to help you to see that when we come to Christ, and when we are invited into him, and when we're invited to the Lord's Supper, we are invited here as individuals. We must answer these questions for ourselves. And going through the motions, if you haven't answered these questions well, means absolutely nothing for you. On the night before Jesus was betrayed, he did not sit across from Peter and institute the Lord's Supper. 
So you come to Christ, you come to salvation as an individual. But you notice how he instituted the Lord's Supper? He got his 12 followers around him. And he took them all at one time, and he instituted a supper that they were then, as a body of believers, commanded to continue from that point forward. To continue to observe this ordinance that he gave them as a body. We are invited to the Lord's Supper as a body of believers. We come to Christ as individuals. But now this becomes a, a, an ordinance for the whole church to, to go through together. We are commanded to remember the sacrifice that was made. So we come here together as individuals who've been saved, but now as a body of believers together to remember what Christ has done for us. We should remember the death, the torture, the agony, the pain that was endured by our Savior. I've got to tell you, I've heard thousands of sermons since I've been saved. But the ones that seem to stick with me the most are the ones that speak about the death of Christ. Brother Rick Lazat brought up a message a little while back, and he just described the crown of thorns, just one small, um, almost in the, in the scheme of things, almost insignificant piece of torture that they used against him. I mean, Christ went through so much that day that that would seem small. And yet you consider the sharpness of that thorn and consider thorns all over his head piercing into his skull and the pain that that would cause. And you think of the lashes that were across his back as they took a cat of nine tails and tied sharp objects to it so that it would dig in and pull chunks out as it went. You think about them spitting on his face and, and, and eating him. You think about a visage, his, his face marred more than any man, that he was beaten until he was unrecognizable as a man, and then forcing him to carry that cross on that back that had just been torn apart up a hill so that they could nail spikes through his hands and his feet. When we think about that torture and that agony, it helps us to see the devastation of sin. And it helps us to see the unbelievable love of the Savior for us. He went through all of that for us. But we don't only come to the Lord's Supper to remember. This is, this is the great thing about the Lord's Supper. There are many memorial services that you go through and you, you sit at with a loved one who's passed on. And as a believer, we have that incredible hope that we'll see them again someday. But we're remembering their life, recognizing that they're no longer there. But when we come to the communion service, it's not just a memorial. It's a time of communion with the Christ who died and then rose again. It's a recognizing that he's not just still in the grave, but that he rose again and that he's with us. Communion is fellowship, right? And so we come to a place like this and we say, we get to speak today to the Jesus who died for us. That he is here. He's not just physically in the elements, but his presence is here with us right now. That we experience communion with him. We commune with the Savior. The sweetest times that I've had in my walk with Christ are connected to this service. Because it's the time that I most passionately, most obviously feel the presence of Christ. That he's commanded us to do this, that we're thinking about him, we're thinking about what he's done. 
I encourage you as you bow your heads in just a few moments to remember and to pray as though Jesus was, is with you. To thank him for the nails. To thank him for the lashes. To thank him for the crown of thorns. To think of what he's done. We commune with the Lord at the Lord's Supper. But as I said, we're not invited to the Lord's Supper as individuals. This is not something we do in our closet. This is something we come as a body to. Why? Because we're also invited in com to commune with one another. That this service is meant to be a time of fellowship for the whole body of Christ. It's not only to remember, it's to commune with Christ and to commune with each other. We do this because I think as we gather together as the Lord's Supper each time, it seems like our church grows stronger, that the bonds that we share grow stronger. It is a chance for us to forgive, to seek forgiveness, to love. It is a chance for us to remember our responsibility, not just for our own growth, but for the growth of another, to sit at the feet of the cross with other people and to look at him and to remember what he's done and, and to think about what that means for all of us together as a body. Don't, don't make your Christian walk overly personalized, where it becomes only about you. It's not only about you. You've been invited into a family. That's what, that's what Christianity is. You've been adopted into the family of God. And we're invited here as a family to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Communion is meant to be a somber time of remembrance and reflection, but it is also a joyful time of fellowship and hope. And as we pass out the elements, I want you first to consider the question that Jesus asked the disciples 2,000 years ago. Whom do you say that I am? If you're here today without Christ, this can be the day that you come to, him, to know him, to trust him as your Savior, that, that you can have a testimony like they shared just a few minutes ago where they knew about Christ. They'd gone to religion class, but he wasn't in their hearts. They, they hadn't trusted him with their eternal soul. He wasn't their personal Savior. And Jesus doesn't want you to just have general knowledge. He wants you to have a relationship with him. That's the relationship that saves. If you're here today without Christ, I, I encourage you to repent, and to put your faith and trust in him to save you. If you know Christ, but you're not walking in obedience, this is your chance to examine your life in light of the cross, to see the Christ crucified for your sin, and to turn from it, to stop enjoying and living in the sin that put your best friend on the cross. Pastor mentioned that this morning. I think it's just a, a, an incredible thought for us. How can we continue enjoying the sin that put our Savior on the cross? If you know Christ and you're seeking to please him, but you struggle, we come today to find hope, to find power, to find motivation, to move on, to continue to follow him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for this simple but profound memorial service where we remember your death, where we commune with the God of heaven, and where we enjoy fellowship together as a body of believers. We thank you for just your, your brilliance in putting a service like this together for us and the power and the simplicity. God, I pray that as we take partake of this supper that you would just help us to glorify you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work 
And if there is one here today that doesn't know you as Savior, that they would see the gospel proclaimed in the baptismal service and now in communion, and that they would trust you for themselves. We love you, Father. We thank you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.